student named Edward Spencer was jogging along the shore of Lake Michigan early one morning in the fall of 1860. Through the dark, he started to make out several large masses along the shoreline that he typically didn't see on this run. As he approached, his eyes began to strain, and the moonlight was casting large shadows from these lumps onto the shoreline. Through the dark, he picked up his pace towards the lumps. Curious, he slowed as one began to move. It was like it was stuck to the earth, trying to separate itself, was alive. The others were still jogging closer. His pupils widened, and his quick breath drew quicker. His heart finds a new gear. It's racing now. The lumps, they're humans. A steamship, the Lady Elgin, collided with another ship, the Augusta, in the waters of Lake Michigan earlier that morning before his run. The Lady Elgin was carrying 300 passengers. It was a sightseeing tour. The captain didn't think that there was really that much damage to the ship, so he continued on the tour, not realizing how badly the ship was damaged. He pressed on towards Milwaukee in the dark. But about a half hour after the collision, the iron boilers and the steam engine shattered the weakened hull of the ship, causing it to break up and begin to tear apart. Most of the passengers and crew, they, they died almost immediately, but there were some who scrambled in the darkness to a few lifeboats. And out of desperation, approximately 100 clung to the cabin, which was wooden and separated from the ship whenever it went beneath the surface of the dark water of Lake Michigan that morning. Soon, the cabin broke up too. <clears throat> Many passengers drowned, leaving others clutching to wreckage or swimming in the dark looking for a light to swim towards or something to hold on to. So some of those who were floating on debris were making their way towards the light, reaching the shore almost, only to be pulled back by a fierce undertow. Seventeen people were saved that morning by Edward Spencer, who battled the breakers for six long hours. An experienced swimmer, he tied a rope uh, around his waist and swam time after time out to, to rescue someone who was stuck in the breakers of the lake and to bring them back to shore as his associates pulled him back in with that rope. Finally, having reached the limits of his strength, his body covered with scrapes and bruises, Spencer's body gave up. No more swimming, no more saving. He woke up in his room in Evanston where his brother William waited on his recovery. Edward's first words were, Will, that I do my best. So although Edward tried to resume his studies, the physical and the emotional toll was so great, so severe on his body and heart and mind, that he was unable to continue. Uh, the newspapers around the nation pressed in on his life, wanting to get to know the hero, to get to know his story. He was never comfortable without attention, though. The faces and the cries of the victims that he, he couldn't reach haunted him for the rest of his life. In fact, he didn't want to go back 
anywhere near the lake. Spencer never completed his education. And after those 50 years, he did finally return to Evanston to recount the deed and talk about the wreck of the Lady Elgin. He was so badly injured that he arrived in a wheelchair that he'd spent his life in because he'd lost the use of his legs that fateful morning. And when he finally visited, in those later years, people saw him. He said through tears, not one of those rescued ever came back and even said thank you. Undoubtedly, Spencer did not come do those deeds to get thanks from those people. So I bet that we all agree we fail to say thank you. Maybe we would agree that other people fail to say thank you. If you've raised kids or you've been around people raising kids, you've probably heard the phrase, say thank you. I mean, how often do we turn to our kids or the kids of another and say the words, say it with me, say thank you. Like we're all very, very well rehearsed at reminding others to say thank you. It became such a constant phrase around my house that I wasn't sure if it was the echo of mom or if it was mom that was saying, say thank you. In fact, it became like this running joke from, I would say, the time that my sister and I could talk, uh, not really, but very young, where my sister and I would carry the gifts from the tree and we would look at mom, make eye contact, and ever so carefully hand that gift so that when you could see the gift touch the hand, say thank you, like right there. That's how much we love to egg our our mom on about say thank you. And oh, the day of her birthday was our favorite because she was the recipient. And we weren't quite as subtle as those who might just give a knowing glance. We were ready for that gift to hit that hand. Did you say thank you, mom? Did you say thank you? Because we never had the chance, it felt like, But our mom knew the importance of say thank you. So why is thank you such a big deal? Why do moms across the planet make gratitude like the chief of all values in the world? Or so it seems. What is the big deal? So today as Christians, we want to open the word. And I'll be all over the New Testament really quickly. We'll have it on the screen. But then we're going to land in where you already know. So go ahead and turn there. Christians that have done Thanksgiving thing in church before, you know where we're going. Uh, And those of you that don't, it'll be on the screen, and we'll announce it in a minute. But if you think you know where you're going, go ahead and get there. But we're going to talk about three reasons that your mom is right. You should say thank you. Three reasons your mom is right. You should say thank you. And then we're going to see two results worth pursuing when we practice gratitude. So reason number one, and we're going through the first two pretty quick. Reason number one, uh, Scripture commands it. Scripture commands commands it. Reason number one, Scripture commands it. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you. Now this, uh, just to get a quick background, this is from the guy who was in Thessalonica, but before he was there, he was in Philippi where he was run out of town. 
not just persecuted, they were trying to beat him again, okay? And then he's in Thessalonica, and the persecution becomes so intense that he and Timothy and some others have to withdraw to Athens. We read that in the letter of 1 Thessalonians. So this is from the guy who's run out of town, and you can see this in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So as they're in this town, Thessalonica, they're still experiencing conflict, and he still says, in everything, say it with me, say thank you, right? Say thank you. In everything, say thank you. In Ephesians 5.20, this is still reason number one. Scripture commands it. Ephesians 5.20, same author Paul writes, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when is Ephesians written? Where is Paul? If you guys know where he is, it's likely Rome, and he's in a, is he in a hotel? Is he in the Four Seasons? He's in prison. Paul is in prison, and he's writing that in all circumstances, we should be thank you. So, we should be saying thank you. So let's go on to one more, uh, Philippians 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with what? With what, church? With thanksgiving, present your request to God. So in my life, and, and I, I'm discovering as I, I share my struggle with worry with some friends, that in the life of others, and maybe in your life, so I'm curious, is this something in your life? Is this a practice you've developed? You might even call it a discipline. That when you begin to worry, <clears throat> you begin to think about things that are tomorrow that you have no control over, do you have the habit of saying thanks? Do you have the habit of trying to list out that for which you're grateful? Do you have the prayerful practice to say Oh boy, I feel some worry rising up in my heart, kind of starting to become the Lord here in my life because it's all I think about. It's what I seek to serve every day is to, to, to finish this worry in my life, myself. Do you respond with thanks? Because Paul writes to these Ephesians, he's, he, he says it's a part of what, what kind of condition do we get in our hearts from this. So explore with me Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. And Paul says that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying that a a peace that is beyond what we can understand is available to us in Christ Jesus. But it is through partly saying thanks. So that's reason number one. But result number one is that thanks can lead to peace. Our thanks to God can lead to peace that passes understanding. Thanks has the powerful ability to change the condition of our hearts. How many times this season, as we lead into the next season, which I might argue is superior, but how many times in the season of thanks will we let worry and hurry 
dominate our lives in such a way that we become blinded to the work that has already been and is continuing to be performed in our hearts and lives by our Savior Jesus. Thanks can lead to peace. But thanks is not just when we're in a crisis. Uh, Colossians 3.17, Paul, again writing, "...in whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything." In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So this is written by Paul, and as you can probably guess, this means that either he was leaving a beating, experiencing a beating, on his way to a beating, being yelled at by opposition, or where did Paul find respite sometimes? In jail. Not the Four Seasons, but in jail. So Paul is writing this again from jail. He is saying... Be grateful. Give thanks. All right, reason number two that we should say thank you, that we should be grateful, that mom is right, we need to say thank you, is that Jesus does it. This is kind of a quick one because, man, we could spend all day talking about Jesus living this example of gratitude. But a couple of verses, let's go through. If you're a type of person who only thanks God at mealtime, you might be in good company today. I would say you have some growing to do, but you might be in good company because look at these first examples. John 6, verse 11, then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, right? And that's the feeding of the 5,000. Now, the feeding of the 4,000 in Mark chapter 8, verse 6, and he took the seven loaves, and having given, say it with me, Thanks, Jesus again at another miracle. He broke the bread and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So Jesus' example is often around food. His thankfulness is often around food. But it is also interspersed through his ministry. It's after teaching. It's before the raising of Lazarus. And it's during the Last Supper. It's no surprise then, reason number three, is that the reason that we should be thankful is that Jesus expects our gratitude. Not only does he exemplify it, not only does Scripture wholly confirm that through the old and new, but we're now at the one time that so many of you have probably seen so many years of this one time where one person comes back to say thank you. And which book of the Bible are we going to be in? You guys know where it is? Which book of the Bible? I think I heard some people say it. We're in Luke, and we're in chapter 17. So would you join me in Luke chapter 17? You can read from your scriptures, and I'll read from mine. We're starting in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not 
ten cleansed. Where are the nine? No one was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner. And he said to him, Rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. So before we move deeper into this text, which we'll do this morning, I want to pause to allow you just to examine. If you close your eyes, I just want to ask a couple of questions. And I'm going to pray first. Father God, would you illuminate your word to our hearts that we might be transformed into the image of your Son? That you might be increasing the maturity of each one of us for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name. And with your heads bowed, just uh, or eyes closed, however you want to do this, examine, as I read that story, examine. Where did you place yourself in this story? Where did your heart tend towards? How frequently do, do I read Scripture? Do maybe you read Scripture? And we place ourselves like right at the hip of Jesus, standing with him as he's teaching, maybe looking down our nose. How, how telling is our view of this story? How telling is our view and where we position ourselves of the condition of our hearts. So were you in this story, were you the author, were you Luke, or were you the healer, Jesus, and find yourself saying or teaching or nodding in agreement, see, a Samaritan. Subtext, you naughty judgmental people. Or were you with the lepers, were you just ecstatic at your healing? Were you off to find the priests? See, healed. Or subtext, you should trust Jesus. I told you so. Or maybe were, were you the one who came back to give thanks and praise? See, saying thank you is important. Watch me. I'll show you. And you don't have to have your heads bowed anymore, but just that brief exercise helps us see, like, where is our viewpoint in, in this true story in Scripture I think each of these positions is an indicator of our heart. And I think for many of us, sometimes we feel like we're the teacher, even if we don't make ourselves Jesus in the scripture itself. We see ourselves as like the, well, like Mark said, self-righteous, or like the holder of the answers, or the keeper of the truth, or the one who really knows and shows others how to do it. Now back to the passage. Verse 12, these lepers stood at a distance by command they had to. They were unclean. They had to stand at a distance. Of course they did. They were not able to be a part of society because of their disease. So they had to, now this is verse 13, they, and if you see this in your scriptures on our screen here, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices. We don't know this from Scripture, but we know from the disease of leprosy that, that it can gradually break down not only uh, your skin, and it can gradually not only eat a finger, but it can gradually weaken whole systems of the body to where your voice becomes really hoarse 
and you can barely muster what it takes to say, Master Jesus. So maybe it's true that maybe these lepers had to, in unison, gather together and decide, look, we got to be far away because we're unclean, but we've got to get his attention because our hope is in this guy. They recognize him as Master and Jesus in the text. So <clears throat> they've lifted up their voices together, and they're asking for mercy. Now, now, verse 14, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. Now, what would, what would the meaning of go show yourself to the priest be for, for these believers here? Jesus has assumed that they're believing. He's, they've already called him Jesus and Master, so not a big assumption there. However, where is Jesus during this time? And that's still, that's verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, but he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Samaritans and Hebrews. What the Hebrews considered not really faithful people because their temple was not in Jerusalem, was it? They were those mixed people. They were those who went and intermarried. And they really weren't faithful ones. They couldn't have a relationship with God like the real people of God, the Israelites, the Jews, the Hebrews. They could have that relationship. But notice that Jesus doesn't say which priests here. He said, go to the priests. And he just kind of leaves that, that former religious battle now turned like political power struggle. He just leaves it there. And he says, go do what you need to do. And they take off. Now, it's interesting that the, these, uh, these lepers were unclean in such a manner that according to Levitical code, and we're not going to read it all, but at Leviticus 13 and 14, you can read yourself, they would go to the priest if they had a skin problem of any kind. And that priest would examine it in such a way that if it was bad enough, you're out of town for seven days. And you can come back for a checkup, but if it still looks like it, you don't need to come back for a checkup because it still looks like leprosy. So colonies of lepers formed. And what's going to happen when you put all this leprosy together? Well, it's only going to make it worse. So these guys are wandering around in this terrible state when upon them comes the hope that they need for cleanliness. They had the faith to move from Jesus to the priest in whom they could find the freedom that they wanted to reintegrate with society because the social stigma and then the financial impact of being away from your family for some time we could imagine in a developed country where we have savings accounts and insurance, that would still have an impact on my life. Would that have an impact on yours? If you're having to be away from your family for a length of time, we don't know how long here, but a great length of time, would that not impact far more than just your friendships or your family relationships? Friends, that would start impacting my financial relationship to my family rather quickly. How long can they keep sending me food? How long can they say it's on the rock past the third road on the left? I hope the camels didn't get it. How long are they going to be able to support someone who's not able to contribute anything back to the family? This disease is not a minor cold, so uh, I would encourage you not to Google for images of leprosy because it's such a slow disease that it can take lots of flesh and still be alive. It can take lots of digits and you can still be alive. 
I remember um, laying in the hospital in Jasper after my Jeep accident, and I remember looking forward to uh, the day when I would be well enough to get out of the hospital and go push Micah, who was almost two, and Noah, according to my wife, was nowhere near as old as I said he was, but four or five, she'll tell you. I was just looking forward to getting out of there so I could go push my kids on a swing again. I was dreaming about being out of there and someday hopefully getting to push my Gracie on a swing again. Don't you think that's probably what life was like for these nine? That's probably what they wandered around together and talked about. Remember when I could hug my kids? Remember when I was home and I was able to come home from a day of work? How thankful would they have been at that moment that they were able to work among the society in which they used to live, to come home where their family was, to set their coat by the door, to rustle the hair of their kid's head, and to, you know, lovingly greet your wife or whatever. But how, um, how their imaginations must have been filled as they ran towards those priests thinking, I can't wait to get back home. And they're literally doing what Jesus said. Go show yourself to the priests. But in verse 15, we see one who's different than the nine. We see one in verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed. We have no idea how quickly these guys were healed. We don't know how deep their wounds were. We don't know how many digits were missing. But one guy saw the effects of the power of Jesus in his life and decided right then and there. He decided when he saw that he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice. I wonder if his vocal cords had even healed to where now we have his loud voice instead of they and a voice together. I wonder if his vocal cords were healed and he's like, wow, I can say thanks be to God again. I can rush to the feet of Jesus and say, thank you, Lord, for healing me. He left the nine that were pursuing the priests. They were pursuing that ritual cleansing. They were pursuing that social reestablishment. They were pursuing literally what Jesus said to do. Show yourself to the priests. And he chose to turn back because he'd seen that he was healed. His response was both. It was two things. It was thanks and it was praise. So this is result number two. Gratitude draws us nearer to Jesus. I would say mom's right. Saying thank you is important. But it's critical that our thanks become not just to the people who give us stuff, but that our thanks would turn to praise as we aim that back towards the giver of all good gifts, as James calls him. That we have to put ourselves in a mind that says, thanks, giver. When we become a thanksgiver, maybe we'll become like this, this one, like this leper in, in Luke who turns back from the nine to express his thanks and praise to God. Now, the man makes it back to Jesus. How, how far back? We don't know. But we know this. The result of his healing was a decision. 
and his decision was to draw near to Jesus. He drew near in praise and thanksgiving. His gratitude for the results of that healing drew him back to Jesus. So finally, in verses 17 and 18, then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Jesus clearly establishes his expectation that our thanks and our praise would draw us near to him, that our, our lives and the work he's done in our lives would result in a, a nearness to him and a willingness to explain, exclaim in praise what God has done in our lives. I wonder, I wonder how many times in, in my own life And I wonder how many times in your lives have we booked it for the priest with the nine? Because we know that we have to do that. We know that we have to do what Jesus said. We have to go back to the priest to become reintegrated to the society that we have been put out from. How many times have we taken the new healing or the new freedom or the new life or the the newness of life in Christ itself and have we returned then to the lives that we live so excited to reintegrate. And we've forgotten to give thanks. We've forgotten to draw near to Jesus and to give him praise. Uh, Would you bow your heads, friends? Uh, We are likely this month going to celebrate an American uh, holiday called Thanksgiving. Uh, Most frequently, we do this in the company of friends and family. Uh, Some of us look forward to this gathering because we're going to get to be with people we haven't seen, sometimes for months, uh, sometimes for years. We're looking forward to hugs that we haven't had. Maybe we're looking forward to making a meaningful moment with someone who we're not sure is going to make it to Christmas or someone who, because of their station in life, may not have another Thanksgiving in them. I'm curious, during this month of thanks, uh, during these gatherings of families and friends, during the days and the preparations and all the shopping and planning that leads up to our time spent with family and friends, will we remain with the crowd? Will we run with the nine or will we be like the one? Will we keep our heads down and book it back to the priest? Or will we embrace uh, traditional expectations or maybe a family expectation or maybe a demand put on you by your work or your friends that we just fall into the role that we're comfortable playing? We'll just be chill. Or will we allow what God has done in our hearts and lives to draw us near to Jesus, to say, thanks, to express our gratitude in praise. Does our gratitude lead us to praise? Will our actions and our words be filled with the gratitude and the praise that Jesus expects? Running with the nine is easy, but with the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts and lives, we can be like the one. 
Our Heavenly Father, we're asking that you and this morning would be preparing us for a a time that we're going to be back with our families, with our friends. For some of us, maybe a time when we don't get to see them. A time when we may look inward and wonder why we don't have these relationships. Father, I'm asking that this morning you would help each of us to be prepared to depart from the crowd, from what looks normal, and to be the one who says thanks, giver. We pray this all in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.